turn to that Bible passage tonight. And uh, I'm keen to get started on this because it's quite a long passage and I don't want to go on uh, too long tonight. So please turn with me to 2 Chronicles and chapter 20. In the year 1967, the nation of Israel was caught in another war. There were a number of wars after Israel was re-established in the land since 1948. Uh, Of course, there was a conflict in 1949 and then 1956. You had the Suez Crisis. And in 1967, Nasser closed off the the Suez to the Israelis. And it it was a, a war with Egypt and Jordan and Syria. And uh, they came against Israel, and Israel uh, resisted them. And you really think that uh, Israel would have been beaten by the sheer numbers of Arabs all around them. If you ever look at the statistics for this war, it is staggering. Because uh, man to man, and tank to tank, and plane to plane, Israel was far, far outnumbered. And yet, the Lord gave them uh, a great, great victory. And one of, the process, one of the things that came out of that war was a new and bigger map for Israel. Little Israel then took over the whole of the Sinai and gained the Golan Heights as a result of this war and, of course, gained their capital city of Jerusalem. You know, it's an interesting thing. You'd think the Arabs would learn, but every time they go to war against Israel, Israel wins and Israel ends up with more blessings. (laughs) And this is the lesson, actually, of the passage that we're looking at tonight. This is about the battle that ended in blessing. Uh, Because in this chapter, Moab comes against Israel and the end result is is great material blessing and spiritual blessing for the people of Israel. And I want us to take this and apply this to ourselves tonight because we're all called to be soldiers in the Lord's army and we're all in a battle. You know, Warren Wiersbe has a little phrase uh, written, or used to have a, a little phrase written on his desk, which he picked up from one of his lecturers when he was at Bible college. And the little phrase said, Be kind, everyone is in a battle. That's a good thing to remember, isn't it? It's not just you, everyone's in a battle. And we need to remember that for each other. We're all in a battle, but we're all involved in the big battle too. I heard about a Chicago construction worker who was working 110 feet up on a building project and he needed to uh, reach across and do something quite difficult and so he unclipped his harness at 110 feet up he unclipped his harness to be able to stretch and reach and do his work and as he had unclipped it um, a metal cage carrying some things came up and it knocked where he was leaning across and of course he lost his balance and went down thud on the earth now thankfully he lived Uh, and they came quickly with the paramedics and they put him on the stretcher to take him away and do you know what he said as they picked him up on the stretcher he said don't drop me (laughs) now this 
this fellow had just fallen 110 feet and he was worried about falling two feet. (laughs) Can you see something ironic about that? You know, sometimes that's like us. We're worried about our little battles and they're not little to us, but in comparison to the huge battle of history, we forget our little battles are a part of the bigger battle. And uh, it's the bigger battle that we need to be aware of. There is a massive battle in history ever since the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and the fall of Lucifer uh, in time before that. And now we are caught in our own little battles which are an outworking also of this great big battle on earth. And uh, we want to know how that battle will end in blessing, because it will do if we look at the end of the story, at the end of the Bible. And we want to know how the battle can end in blessing for us. And this is what this story teaches me as we look at this story. This was one of the parts of the book of Chronicles that Ezra, the compiler of Chronicles, included for the children of Israel who had come back into the land because there were so many good lessons for them to learn in their situation. As they were trying to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem in Nehemiah and Ezra's day, they were coming up against these same Arab enemies that were coming against Jehoshaphat in these days and they needed to learn about how Jehoshaphat handled the battle and how he handled the situation and put his trust in the Lord and the battle was the Lord's and they had victory and they had blessing as a result. They needed to learn that lesson and you and I need to learn this lesson too. So I want us to look at this tonight and uh, understand what's going on here. Now, as I've already said, it's in the days of King Jehoshaphat. King Jehoshaphat was one of the kings of Judah. And you remember that the nation of Israel was divided into the northern and the southern kingdoms. Northern kingdom was called Israel uh, and the southern kingdom was called Judah. And he was one of the line of David who was a king of Judah. And he reigned about 870 BC. His name means Yah is judge. And God was certainly going to judge the enemies. Because while he was reigning... Three groups came together to attack Israel, much similar, very similar in a way to the Six Day War when they attacked Israel, Egypt, Syria and uh, Jordan. You had the Ammonites and the Moabites who were the descendants of Lot, you remember, in the land of Jordan. And uh, they teamed up with another group who we think are the Edomites. Now you'll see in some translations it will say the Munites in verses 1 and 2. M-E-U-N-I-T-E-S. And we believe the Munites are people who live not far from Petra in the land of Jordan, what was then called Edom. And they came against Israel and they came round the southern end of the Dead Sea up to En Gedi, which is just about uh, a, a short distance, I think it's less than 20 miles, to Jerusalem. And they were coming up uh, on that side. There is a little bit of confusion in the minds of some commentators because it says they came down from the sea, beyond the sea, from Syria. And it sounds like they're coming down rather than 
coming up. But the implication here is that actually they're being driven by another force which is further up. And they are being driven by Syria. And Damascus is also behind this war and fueling this war. And if you read in the context of the life of Jehoshaphat, that makes sense. Because in the story before this, he has been to war against Syria with King Ahab, Jezebel's husband, to try and reclaim Ramoth-Gilead. And uh, they, they lost that battle. So many people believe that this war was actually instigated by Damascus, a very powerful force at that time, uh, to try and get these three forces to come against Judah. And it was a big deal. But God brought a great deliverance for them. And in fact, he didn't just rescue them, he brought them out of this battle with great blessing. And this passage is so wonderfully written. As usual, there is a structure to it, a chiasm structure to it. Okay? And if if, uh, you don't get this down, I can give this to you uh, afterwards. But you have a beginning and an ending where you have the enemies attack at the beginning and at the end you have the enemies afraid. It says God gave rest to Jehoshaphat at the end of the passage and all the enemies around them were afraid. Then you take a step in and you have Israel assembled to prayer and at the other end you have Israel assembled to praise and give thanks. Then you have before the battle, when they're praising God before they go into battle. And then after the battle, when they're plundering uh, the people. And in the middle of the story, you have God's miraculous intervention, which we will see tonight. So let's have a look at this chapter and see the battle that ended in blessing. It was a Moab battle, mother of all battles, (laughs) but God brought great victory. And there's three things to learn from this passage. We want to learn their spiritual response, first of all, in verses 3 to 21. We want to learn their surprising rescue in verses 20 to 25. And thirdly, we want to learn their sincere rejoicing at the end in verse 28 to 30. These are the three lessons for us. First of all, their spiritual response. Now, how you respond to a situation tells us an awful lot uh, about, about you. You know, somebody has said that a Christian is like a tea bag. It's when you put them in hot water that the flavor floods out. <laughs> and, uh, and this is what was true with Jehoshaphat and the people of Israel. When they were dropped in the hot water of, of real life battles and difficulties, we saw how they responded. And Jehoshaphat, who had made mistakes... We mustn't think that Jehoshaphat was a perfect king by any means. He had married Jezebel's daughter. You don't get a bigger mistake than that. He'd gone to battle with King Ahab. And actually he then also uh, did a deal after this with Ahaziah, Ahab's son as well. You'll see in the story that follows this. So he was very far from being a perfect person. But when these enemies came against Judah... He made a wonderful response to the situation, which we can learn from for our battles and for the great battle that we're all engaged in. His battle was three, his, his response was threefold. First of all, he responded with prayer in verses 3 through to 13. You'll notice verse 3 says, And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. 
So Judah gathered together to ask help from the Lord. And from all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. Somebody has said, make matters of care matters of prayer. And that's what Jehoshaphat did. He took this matter to the Lord and he got serious about it. He sought the Lord and he himself fasted and humbled himself under the mighty hand of God. That's the best thing to do with your problems. I remember hearing a preacher say this years ago and it stayed with me forever. He said, if you're not praying about your problems, you're not doing anything about them. It doesn't matter what else you're doing. If you're not praying about them, you're not doing anything about them. But Jehoshaphat did the right thing. He went to prayer and he called the people of Israel to pray as well. And his prayer in verses 3 to 13 is absolutely a, 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 a model prayer for us. He talks to God on the basis of his character In verse 6, he says, you are the God of our fathers, God in heaven, you rule over the kingdoms of the nations. And in your hand there is power and might so no one's able to withstand you. He comes to God on the basis of his character, that he's the almighty. He comes to the basis of God on the basis of his covenant with Abraham. In verse 7, are you not our God who drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and gave it to the descendants of Israel? Abraham your friend forever. Now that's the Abrahamic covenant where God in in Genesis 15 and 17 gave the land as a possession to Israel. In Genesis 17 it says forever. And a friend in the Bible is not just a buddy. A friend is a covenant partner. Abraham is called in scripture three times the friend of God. He is a covenant friend. Like David and Jonathan, they were friends, but they were covenant partners. And he comes to him on the basis of this covenant that he had with Abraham. Abraham had the ultimate for his intimate. And he said, you made a promise to Abraham that this land would be ours. But then he came to God on the basis of his compassion in verses 8 through to 11 and 12. And he said about how when they came to this land, they built the temple there and they made it a place where they could come and call on God in times of crisis and down in verse 12 he he brings that crisis to the Lord he says oh our God will you not judge them for we have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us nor do we know what to do but our eyes are upon you (laughs) he throws himself in emptiness and helplessness and hopelessness before the Lord. I think it was Old Housby that said that uh, helplessness and prayer go together. And so what a, what a wise response this was that King Jehoshaphat made. First of all, a spiritual response to his problem was to pray to the Lord. More ships, some cry, more guns, more fighters in the air. But why is the king who cries more prayer that's what he did and then uh, and and by the way that's a a response that many Christians have learned as well is the vital response to make in any situation I came across a lovely story about Ruth Graham Billy Graham's wife and uh, a lot of people thought that because Billy Graham was a great preacher it would be easy sailing bringing up their children but it was far from it 
And uh, some of their children really rebelled against them and really rebelled against the Lord. And, uh, you know, Franklin Graham himself admitted that and wrote that book, uh, Rebel with a Cause, because he, turned, he was turned around by the grace of God. One night, Ruth Graham was lying awake, worrying about what was going on in her family. And she felt God say to her heart, quick studying the problems and start studying the promises. And so she opened her Bible, and the first verse she saw was Philippians 4, verse 6, that says that we're to do everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, and to present our requests to God. She put her Bible down, and she started praying and thanking God for his goodness to her, and the help he had been in her life. And God graciously heard her prayers for her children, as we know. So that's an encouragement to us to follow that same pattern. He also went into prophecy, because what happened after they had prayed was a wonderful response from the Lord. In verse 14, it says, Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, son of Zechariah. Now, Jehaziel was one of the uh, uh, Levites who was serving in uh, the temple at that time. And in the book of Chronicles, because it's written by Ezra, who was himself a Levite, there is great interest in the activity of the Levites. And you'll find that his book especially highlights the activities of every Levite. And it must have been a great joy to him to write about this particular man, Jehaziel. And this man who was there in that great congregation, who was there seeking the Lord in prayer that day, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. The, the Hebrew is very graphic. It's, he fell upon him. What a mighty force the Holy Spirit is when he comes in, in power like that. And he came upon Jehaziel, one of the uh, men who had a, an ancestry which was notable, as is recorded here and elsewhere in the book of Chronicles. And he gave him a prophecy. I wonder if his father, Zechariah, had hinted or, or prayed that he would one day be a prophet because his name, Jehaziel, means God reveals and uh, God certainly did reveal things to him and he revealed the answer to uh, Jehoshaphat and the people and he told how God was going to rescue them and they didn't have to worry about this battle because as it says down in verse 15 for the battle is not yours but God's ultimately what he's saying is it's not you they're coming against it's God they're coming against and because you're God's people, that's why they're coming. And the battle is not yours, but God's. And so you need to put your trust in him. And uh, tomorrow go down against them, verse 16, and uh, you will find that the Lord has the victory. And in verse 17, he says, you will not need to fight in this battle. Position yourself, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you. Where do you see that elsewhere, by the way, in the Bible? You see that on the shores of the Red Sea, when the children of Israel have Pharaoh closing in behind them and the Red Sea before them. How are they going to escape? Moses says, stand still and you'll see the salvation of your God. And there's a great parallel in the story about what happens because at the end of the battle they both see the dead enemies on the seashore or on the battlefield afterwards just like that event. And so a prophecy is given for 
their faith in verses 14 to 17. And Jehoshaphat tells the people, we've got to put our trust in the word of God. I like what he said uh, in verse 20. It might say verse 19 on there. It should say verse 20. But in verse 20, he said in the last part of verse 20, believe in the Lord your God and you shall be established. Believe his prophets and you shall prosper. This is what God was leading Jehoshaphat to do as his spiritual response, to put his trust in the word of God. An amazing prophecy had been given. And what a prophecy it was. If you look in verses 15 and 16 and 17, you'll see, again, there's another structure thing of repetition. Uh, Verses 15 and 16, you have the same phrases used again and again. It says, do not be afraid or dismayed. And that's a good word to hear when you're in a battle, isn't it? Do not be afraid or dismayed. Twice he says that. And twice he says, tomorrow. God's going to do it tomorrow. And on one verse it says, go down. And another one it says, go out against them. And uh, it says that the, the battle is the Lord's. And in the second place, for the Lord is with you. God was making clear by repetition this message that they were to trust in him for the victory. And you know what, dear friends, as we go through the battles of life, we also need to trust in the promises of God and the word of God. Paul said to Timothy to wage war with those promises of God that have been made about him. And you and I also have exceedingly great and precious promises, according to the book of Peter, for helping us live this Christian life. It's a part of the battle strategy when we come into difficulties we go to prayer and we find the promises of God which we stand on in the face of difficulty are you in a time of battle right now seek God Lord where are the promises in your word that will help me to stand firm at this time if nothing else I guarantee one will fit and that's Romans eight twenty eight. all things work together for the good of those who love him That one fits every situation and there's many other promises that will fit other things as well. So that will give you ground to stand on. Like the wise man, your house will be built upon the rock. But then his third response was a response of praise. Because in verses 18 to 20, once this prophecy had been given by Jehaziel, like the angels on the stairway of Jacob's ladder, as the prophecy came down, the praise went up and the people immediately responded in worship to the Lord. Verse 18, Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem bowed, down, bowed before the Lord, worshipping the Lord. They turned to praise. And in again... The Levites are highlighted in verse 19. The Kohathites and the Korahites praised God. And by the way, you know we sung that song just before singing, Great is the Lord, most worthy of praise. That was from the Psalms. I think it's uh, Psalm 48, I think it is. And uh, it's one of the Psalms that was written at this time. And it's written by the sons of Korah. 
That's why I, entered, that's why I shared it tonight. And uh, it's talking about how God came. There, in fact, lots of psalms came out of this time. Psalm 46 to 48, the psalms of Korah, and possibly Psalm 83, the prophetic one still for the future, which had a, a historical anchor in this occasion too, which is a psalm of Asaph. So they went to praise and they praised the Lord for what they had just heard. But not only that, they put praise at the front of the battle. Because when they rose early the next morning to go out to fight, in verse 20, we read in verse 21, that after Jehoshaphat had had a council of war, he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who should sing to the Lord. And who should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army and were saying, praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. He said, let's, let's put the singers at the front. That was a step of faith. You know, instead of putting the soldiers with the most courage, the men of valor, as they were called in Israel's day at the front, put the singers at the front. I mean, that was a step of faith for the singers as well, wasn't it? <laughs> you know, normally, women and children first. You know? <laughs> we brave men. But they put the worshippers at the front. You know, in the Six-Day War, one man wanted so much to be involved. His name was Leonard Cohen. Do you remember that guy who wrote that song? He had a number of hit singles. And a very famous song called Hallelujah. He was a Jew. And he, when, when this war happened, he flew into Israel. He said, I want to be involved in the army. I want to help do my bit. And they said, no, you can't go in the army. He said, but you can sing to the troops. And they took him around all the camps and he performed about eight concerts a day trying to lift the morale of the troops singing uh, songs to them. Uh, and by the way, that's Ariel Sharon just there next to him in that war. Well, these men weren't singing to the troops. They were singing to the Lord. And praise was going up to the Lord as they were going forward into battle. They, they sang Psalm 136. Praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever and praise was a part of their weapon of war you know dear friends this is the spiritual response they made to a major attack in their day now it's taken a long time to get all that expounded but i hope you've got the lesson that when we come under attack when we come to battles in our lives we have a choice we can make a carnal response or we can make a spiritual response. How do we respond to the battles we're in? How do we respond? We should be like Jehoshaphat. Take it to the Lord in prayer. We should listen to the prophecies. The promises of the word of God. And stand upon them. And we should in faith praise God. And go forward saying the battle is the Lord's. It's his battle. And he is with us. As he said do not be afraid or terrified. And uh, we will see God's hand at work. We should give him worship and praise. That's the response you and I need to learn to make. I love the story of the man who came to his pastor one day and he said, Pastor, it's all very well you telling us to praise God. He said, but I can't think of anything uh, to praise God for. He said, uh, I'm hopelessly out of debt and I don't have any chance of ever being able to repay it. What have I got to praise God for? The pastor looked at him and smiled and said, you can praise God, you're not one of your creditors. 
<laughs> if you think about it, there's always something to praise God for, isn't there? And we should be looking for that. Okay, let's move on then and see the next part of the story. Not only their spiritual response, but their surprising rescue. And this is the next part of the story in verses 22 to 25. Because what we have happened now is something which is unheard of anywhere else in history. This battle was won not by men, but by a sheer act of God. It was not an accident, it was a sheer act of God that brought about this surprising rescue for the people and though they were frightened of having to fight a battle God said to them you don't have to fight and what happened next was amazing we have the outworking in verses 22 to 24 it says now when they began to sing and to praise the Lord set ambushes against the people of Ammon Moab and Mount Seir who had come against Judah and they were defeated Now, we don't know exactly what these ambushes are, but there's a Jewish targum, which is like a commentary, a Jewish commentary on the scriptures. And it says there that angels appeared to the people who were coming against them. And it brought such terror. It was like an ambush coming upon them. And uh, the people then started fighting each other out of fear. And what happened then in verse 23 was the people of Ammon Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir to utterly kill and destroy them. So God took them and got them fighting each other. And I love the end bit of verse 23. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? How God won the battle was to get the enemies of Israel fighting each other and you know what that's that's not the only time that's happened that's happened many times and has been God's strategy many times over if you read the story of Gideon in the book of Judges you remember that's what happened with the Midianites the Midianites ended up fighting each other and that's mentioned in Psalm 83 as well in fact if you remember in the book of Acts this is what happened Do you remember when Paul was on trial in the book of Acts and he mentioned the resurrection and suddenly the Pharisees agreed with him and the Sadducees didn't agree with him and the Pharisees and the Sadducees started fighting against each other in the court. And God set the enemies against each other. And I want you to know that's actually going to happen again in the future as well. You know what it says in Revelation chapter 17 at the end of the Bible? It tells me that that fearful leader called the Antichrist is going to turn on the false church, which is uh, leading the world apostasy in the last days. I believe that's the Roman Catholic Church, uh, who is likened to the great harlot in Revelation 17. And in verse 16, it said, And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, that's the ten leaders under the Antichrist, will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it in their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast and the words of God until the words of God are fulfilled. So he will set the enemies of the people of God against each other, even in the last days. Do you know that's what God's doing in the Muslim world as well? You have Sunnis and Shias fighting each other. 
And I, you know, I've thought to myself, you know, is Lord, is this something we should be praying about? You know, we see lots of threats at the moment from Russia. Why don't we pray, Lord, set Russia and China fighting against each other so they've got no time to fight against us? Why not? God is able to, and God is able to bring deliverance in many other things like that. But there's also a great warning, isn't there? Because this is exactly what the Lord Jesus said. He said, a house divided against itself will not stand. Do you know, I found this newspaper article, uh, I think it's from the Sunday Times. I didn't write which newspaper it came on from, but it was from November 1993. And it was a, it was a historical article. Some uh, uh, papers had been released and found. Uh, and one of the things they said in there was that Hitler planned off, planned call an invasion uh, of Britain during World War II. But apart from the Battle of Britain, he pulled back because he believed Britain was so divided with Bevan against Churchill and all those other things, he thought Britain won't win because they're divided. Now, he was wrong, but it is a, a, a dangerous warning, isn't it, that that's what can happen. And we need to be careful it doesn't happen in the church and in our own lives. So uh, that's the outworking God brought about, setting the enemies of God against each other. And in verse 24 it says, So when Judah came to a place overlooking the wilderness, they looked towards the multitude, and there were their dead bodies, fallen on the earth. No one had escaped. They were all dead, lying there. So that was the outcome. But what was the outcome? The outcome was amazing. In verse 25, when Jehoshaphat and his people came to take away their spoil, they found among them an abundance of valuables on the dead bodies and precious jewellery, which they stripped off for themselves more than they could carry away. And they were three days gathering the spoil because there was so much. It's an amazing thing. There was booty beyond imagination on these uh, soldiers. They were carrying so much jewels and valuable things into battle that it took them three days to gather up all the stuff. Now, some people have said, oh, come on, that's just silly. Soldiers don't take that sort of stuff into battle. That's just where the Bible writers just getting a bit carried away with a bit of hyperbole, you know, to exaggerate the story. Well, can I just to illustrate why I think it is true, not only because I do trust the scriptures to be inspired of God, but let me give you an illustration. Uh, in a, a, a few years ago, these two men uh, bought an Iraqi tank. They're military hardware collectors, and there are people who, who buy these sorts of things. And uh, they, they, they make museums, or they, they're just collectors. And they bought an Iraqi tank from the Gulf War for £30,000 to strip down and do it up. You know, people love to do these things to old cars and things like that. Okay. And when they came to the back, in the fuel tank, they found bars of gold worth two million pounds. Absolutely incredible. Hidden away in the tank. They were carrying treasure to the battlefield to keep it safe. That's what these men were doing when they went to war. But when they lost the battle, that treasure fell into the hands of the Israelis. And God was not just rescuing them, he was blessing them. 
<laughs> that's why I say this is the battle that ended in blessing. And you know, that's a parallel for us in the Christian life as well. Do you know what it says in Romans 8 verse 37? It says that we are more than conquerors through our Lord Jesus Christ. More than conquerors. A conqueror is someone who just wins the war. But someone who's more than conqueror, they don't just win the war, they get all the blessings of the victory as well. And in Christ, we are more than conquerors. And we come out of the battle with blessing. And that's something to be encouraged about, isn't it? God doesn't just want you to get out of things. He wants you to get things out of things. <laughs> he wants you to get things out of your situation. And when you come through a time of battle and a time of struggle, there are great blessings that he will bless you with. I remember when I was going through my darkest time in the last church down in, in Weymouth. I was having a very dark, dark spiritual time and emotional time. But you know, in that time, God gave me a study in the book of Esther that blessed me so much. It was one of my uh, favorite studies. It just was life-changing for me. And uh, I I was able to use that uh, and preach that elsewhere. There are spiritual blessings that God gives his people. And then finally, we see their sincere rejoicing at the end in verses 26 through to 30. Because as Matthew Henry says, uh, public deliverance requires public thanksgiving. And he's right. It says in verse 26, and on the fourth day, they assembled in the valley of Berakar. Now, uh, one Bible commentator highlights the fact that this word assembled is actually a, a congregational word. It's a word we use for worship. And it's used of the, the people coming to the synagogue or coming to the temple for worship. And twice he's used it for the assembly before in prayer before they went to war and then they assembled again afterwards to give thanks to God and there's a spiritual act of worship here at the end of this great battle they assembled in the valley of Berakar and that valley which is the valley that comes up from the Dead Sea towards Jerusalem is called The Valley of Blessing. That's what Berakar means. They called it the Valley of Berakar. And there they blessed the Lord. They blessed him on the battlefield where this had all happened. Therefore the name of the Lord, the name of that place was called the Valley of Berakar to this day. But they didn't just stop on the battlefield and praise God. Then they all came back up to Jerusalem. Jehoshaphat leading the way at the front. And they go to the temple. And they go to the temple and they spend time in the temple afterwards praising God. And verse 28 says they came with all these instruments. So they came to Jerusalem with stringed instruments, harps and trumpets to the house of the Lord. And they worshipped the Lord and gave him thanks. Yeah, something absolutely fundamental for us to learn from this, isn't it? After God has brought us out of a battle, we must return thanksgiving to him and praise to him for what he's done. You know, this is why uh, in a few weeks' time, the Americans will be celebrating their feast of thanksgiving. They always say, once you see the Christmas lights go up, that tells you thanksgiving is on its way. (laughs) And uh, thanksgiving, as you know, is what the pilgrim fathers established into their calendar to give thanks to God for helping them survive that first winter 
when they landed in America, the new land, uh, in the 1600s. And they were helped by the Indians to survive it. And they offered God thanks for that. And they still thank him to this day. What a lesson for us. Do you thank God for what he's done for you? 1 Thessalonians 5.18 tells us we're to give thanks without ceasing. One preacher said, if you don't thank God, you're not in the will of God. Because that's what it says. This is the will of God for you and for me. So what a battle and what a blessing they came to at the end. And the conclusion of the story is the glory of God. It says, and the fear of God was on all the kingdoms of those countries when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. Then the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet for his God gave him rest all around. I want to have rest in my life. I want to have quiet in my life. And therefore, it matters that I make the right spiritual response when a battle comes. And that's why when we do make the right spiritual response, we will see God's rescues and helps in our lives. And we will then give him sincere thanks and rejoicing. And ultimately, of course, in the great battle of history, that is how the story ends. With the church, which has been redeemed and rescued from earth, taken to the new creation, where they will sing God's praises for what he's done for them for all eternity. So let's bear this in mind and let's be a people who give praise and thanks to our God. Amen.